From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. After a candidate loses, or wins for that matter, a story gets told about why. After 2016, all sorts of narratives swirled around. Clinton should have gone to Wisconsin. No, it was Comey. No, Trump tapped into people's economic anxiety. Or it was racism or sexism. Today, how those stories helped shape the 2020 contests. Then, two Coloradans who supported President Trump in 2016, what will they do this time around? I think there's a crisis of confidence right now for me. And I just get to the point where you don't know if you can even trust the man. You know, I look at how he conducts himself. There are times I have seen him conduct himself wonderfully. And we meet more new Americans. This time it's a family affair. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Donald Trump was elected president four years ago. And still, there's a tangle of different narratives about why he won and Hillary Clinton lost. You've heard these theories a million times by now. Economic anxiety, sexism, racism, Comey, Bernie Sanders. After any election, stories are crafted that winners use to govern and losers use to recalibrate. For Democrats, the nomination of Vice President Joe Biden is very much related to the post-2016 stories they've told themselves. Before we dig into this, we should start with Game of Thrones. Yes, a scene from the HBO drama's final episode. What unites people? Armies? Gold? Flags? Stories? There's nothing in the world more powerful than a good story. Nothing can stop it. So that scene is mentioned early on in the new book by political scientist Seth Maskett, a regular guest on our show. Maskett leads the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver, and he's written Learning from Loss. It is about those stories Democrats have been telling themselves since Trump's victory, how they inform the election that's upon us. Seth joins us from his home, and hello again. Good morning, and and thank you so much for using that Game of Thrones quote. (laughs) You're welcome. Uh, You write about 2016, quote, The election was close enough that any explanation could be right. Switch a few votes here and there, and you've got a different president. I mean, Seth, when you put it that way, it seems a very difficult soup to pick a lone narrative out of, don't you think? Yes, it really was. And I think that's part of the reason, you know, I I, I spent a lot of time um, researching this book between basically between 2017 and earlier this year, just talking with Democratic activists in uh, the, the early contest states in, in Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada and South Carolina and to some extent in D.C., and 
this is part of the reason that there were so many theories and that there remain a lot of theories today. Um, after a lot of elections, you usually see people eventually come to some sort of consensus about, okay, this is why this election turned out this way. Yeah. And there's still not agreement. Um, in part because it was so close and there's like at least an ounce of truth to all of these things. You're not necessarily interested, though, in which narrative about the 2016 election is most accurate so much as which ones prevailed and how they led to the selection of Joe Biden. We'll get there in a bit. Uh, But for this book, you actually tested the power of narrative on voters. These were sort of experiments of suggestion. What did you find? Yeah. Um, again, a lot of this book is about um, it's about interviews with people, but there were some other approaches I took in there. Um, at, at one point, the, um, another political scientist, Paviel Haynes and I, um, did a we did an experiment, a survey experiment, where we um, uh, basically we we had a, several hundred people, um, and half of them we showed a narrative about the 2016 election. And this was the the so-called identity politics narrative. This was this idea that um, Hillary Clinton lost because she spent too much time advocating for women, for people of color, for the LGBT community, um, for underrepresented groups. And this somehow felt, um, this somehow left uh, white working class people feeling left out, who as a result left the Democratic Party and, and, and voted for Trump. Um, again, I'm not arguing that this narrative is true, Mm. but we were looking to see what kind of an effect hearing this narrative uh, had on Democrats. And so we basically had this, you know, several hundred people, half of them, we showed this little narrative in a survey. We just had a little blurb about that. And the other half we didn't. And then we asked people like, well, what's, you know, we had a series of questions. What sort of candidates are you thinking about for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination? And we gave them choices like would you prefer a man or a woman? Would you prefer someone more liberal or someone more moderate? Um, would you prefer, uh, you know, just a, just a range of things, a, a white candidate, Latino, a black? And the results there were, were really quite striking. Um, people who saw this identity politics narrative, yeah. they were more likely to prefer a more moderate white male as the Democratic presidential nominee. Um, and it, that effect was actually stronger for, um, for white women. It was stronger for people of color. Um, so, you know, we, what we took from that was that, you know, that, that wasn't necessarily the most common narrative coming out of 2016, but it was a fairly powerful one. And a lot of people heard it and at least some who heard it, it made them more likely to lean towards someone more like Joe Biden, you know, not necessarily him exactly, but as long as he was there doing okay in the contest, um, it it suggested to them that this is the candidate we should be picking right now. And it is a demonstration of the power of story, the story that emerges after a loss or a win. I have to say that reading this book as a journalist, it made me think and rethink and rethink what are the stories the media tells about why an election went in a certain direction. And it occurs to me that those stories can come from the party. Those stories can come from the opposite party. Those stories can come from the press and from pundits. And they have a real effect, don't they, Seth? Uh, They really do. Um, These narratives, I mean, in some ways they can seem a a little silly, but they're also very important. This process of coming up with a story about why an election came out as it did is really kind of vital for telling a party what to do next. Again, whether it's true or not, Um, it, it can be useful for a party to have a rough agreement about what, you know, what exactly what direction should we be heading? 
And one of the things we see, you know, shortly after an election, in, in some ways, there's a contest within a party to define why it just lost. Um, and that that can empower different groups within the party. It, it can it can work against other groups within a party. So that, it's a it, it's a very important process that happens. You alluded to why a candidate like Vice President Joe Biden might emerge post 2016 into 2020, uh, a sense that he's a, a safe bet. Electability. We can talk about that word electability because it's always seemed really squishy to me. But in the earliest primary states. Biden didn't perform well. I think, what, fourth in Iowa, fifth in New Hampshire, a distant second in Nevada. Bernie Sanders had the early lead until South Carolina. And Biden's win there was often framed as come from behind. But did you see it that way, having had your ear to the ground as you did? So that was a fascinating moment. But um, a lot of what I focused on in this book was was all the stuff that happened before that. Yeah. Um, I had been uh, particularly across 2019. Um, I've been just watching and, and, you know, repeatedly interviewing a lot of these these Democratic activists just to find out where they were leaning. By the end of 2019, uh, there was an overwhelming lean within the party toward Joe Biden at that point. This is this is months before um, anyone would start voting in, in Iowa or New Hampshire. And that, you know, it doesn't, it wasn't a consensus by any means. Like there were, you know, Bernie Sanders definitely had his core supporters. There were still some uh, people who were very interested in Elizabeth Warren, but like Biden had the bulk of support by that point. And another thing that was kind of interesting, just, just listening to the conversations across, you know, during 2019 was how much people were kind of downplaying what would likely happen in Iowa and New Hampshire. That is, they were saying, this is, this is such a vast and diverse field of presidential candidates um, does it necessarily matter what these, you know, these very small rural white states are going to say? You know, should we be giving them that kind of power? And so, what you, it, it was, it was interesting to watch that unfold in in February. Um, one of the things that kind of struck me is uh, the way party insiders, party, you know, uh, Democratic uh, members of Congress and governors and others who who normally endorse presidential candidates, just watching their patterns throughout February. So. Pete Buttigieg wins narrowly in Iowa, um, doesn't really get any major, you know, no one really comes to him uh, in the party after that. Uh, there's no major endorsements that he picks up. Bernie wins in, uh, in New Hampshire and also doesn't get many endorsements. Um, but uh, right at um, when Biden wins in South Carolina, suddenly like 30 Democratic members of Congress suddenly run out and endorse him. And it just sends a huge signal that, okay, we've made a choice and a bunch of other presidential candidates just bow out of the race at that point, suddenly not seeing a path forward. Um, I, I thought it was a pretty striking moment of a, of a party making a decision. And I suppose a demonstration of a party's power, um, quoting the book again, uh, the bulk of the diagnoses that is uh, what went wrong in 2016 embraced by activists tended to suggest Biden as the remedy. What diagnosis, what narrative prevailed? You know, again, there are, there are still quite a few of them. And if you, I think if you ask people today, uh, a number of them will still say, and I think the most dominant narratives I, I had uh, uh, heard from people was that, okay, there were problems with the campaign. They, were, they weren't campaigning in the right places. Um, one that we're hearing a lot today is that um, it, it, simply that Hillary Clinton was the wrong choice as a nominee that either she wasn't a great campaigner or uh, the problem was, you know, the conservatives had spent something like 30 years branding her as as just flat out evil. And everyone knew that. 
Um, and it was just hard for her to build up positives at that point that uh, where another candidate might have not had those problems. Um, that identity politics narrative I mentioned, that was, yeah. that was mentioned to me by maybe like a, a third of the people I spoke to. Um, so it wasn't necessarily the, the you know, and there were other things, you know, Oh, uh, Russian interference, uh, Jim Comey, um, uh, Sanders not being supportive as a as a fellow Democrat or something like that. Um, but the the identity politics narrative, is, as I argue, um, was really kind of a, an influential one because any of the other narratives are pretty easily fixable. Um, if you decide you nominated the wrong person or you ran the wrong kind of ads in the wrong part of the country, you can fix that next time around without really having to rethink who you are as a party. Um, if you decide that, you know, if you're a Democrat and you come away from that election feeling that uh, the problem was we spent too much time advocating for underrepresented groups, this has essentially been the Democrats' core mission in the last few decades. And that's a that's a bitter pill to swallow. Um, it's hard to know what to do after that. And that's, I think, why a lot of Democratic activists came out of that election feeling pretty disoriented and really focusing on electability. Electability. We hear that a lot. Uh, indeed, it seems squishy to me. And my sense is that it's often used when women and people of color are running for president. How do you understand the word electability as it relates to Joe Biden? It's such a messy concept. And I really I do try and, and dig into it in this book. Um, I, I think Ezra Klein described electability as uh, it's the idea of not so much who we want as a candidate, but who we think other people want as a candidate. <laughs> Um, so you can really get in your head with this, trying to decide who the most electable candidate is. And we have some evidence about which kind of candidates do better in elections than others. Um, a lot of, but, but a lot of times people's just biases and personal beliefs just come into this and those things actually don't hold up very well to scrutiny. So like there's plenty of evidence that moderate candidates will do a little better in elections than more liberal or conservative candidates will. Okay. Voters actually tend to prefer more moderate people. Fine. Um, there's also a belief that people are less likely to vote for a woman. Uh, that's not, that doesn't really hold up when you look at the evidence. Um, there's beliefs that, um, uh, white people won't vote for a black candidate, which there might be some evidence of that. There's also some evidence that black candidates will do better on voter turnout among black voters. So, um, a lot of this stuff is actually kind of mixed, um, but it's kind of fascinating the way, you know, people within a party will just sort of make decisions ahead of time, just assuming, oh, this kind of candidate can't win simply because of who they are and what they look like and, and what they're saying. Joe Biden outperformed black candidates, even with black voters, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, for instance. How did you come to understand that in the primaries, that is? Yeah. Um, so there was a, a few surveys that I dig into um, in this book uh, that I found kind of interesting. There was one survey done in the summer of 2019 where Democrats were simply asked, who do you prefer as the Democratic nominee? And at that point, I think um, Biden was in first place, but not by a lot, um, followed closely by by Warren and, and then by uh, Sanders and then, you know, all the other candidates uh, arrayed down below. Um, but it was pretty close. Um, then they ask people a different question. They say, if you could wave a magic wand and make one of these people president today, who would you pick? Huh. And at that point, um, Elizabeth Warren won that. 
Um, and Biden lost a lot of support in that. You know, like there were there were actually a lot of Democrats who like they had a preference that was not Joe Biden, but they were leaning toward him because they thought he could win in a November election against Donald Trump. And it was somehow he he became perceived as the electability candidate. And mm. that um, so anytime people were concerned about electability, it moved a lot of support in Biden's direction. It took a lot out of Warren. Mostly, I think she suffered the most for that belief that people who generally liked her but didn't think she could win. Um, it also hurt um, uh, the African-American candidates. It hurt um, uh, Kamala Harris and um, uh, Cory Booker. Um, just a, a belief that they couldn't win, even though people generally like them. You cite a social media post by an educator named Lori Goff. Her essay went viral and it tried to explain why many African-Americans feel an affinity towards Joe Biden. Just quoting from it, this old rich white man played second fiddle to a black man, not just any black man, but a younger black man, a smart black man, not just for a day, not one, not two, but eight years. A reference, of course, to President Barack Obama. Did that post resonate with you, given what you were hearing from the party faithful? I thought that that quote, I thought, captured a lot. And uh, it was a reminder to me that while a lot of Democrats were um, leaning toward Biden because they perceived him as electable, um, there were also there was a fair chunk of the party that saw him, um, you know, particularly uh, black Democrats, saw him as a real ally. And a lot of that came from um, his work with Barack Obama, that, you know, he'd been uh, Obama's uh, vice presidential, uh, vice presidential running mate and vice president twice. Um, he seemed to be a very good vice president. They had, as far as we can tell, like a real chemistry governing together. Um, and that actually like, you know, that had huge symbolic value, um, I think, for a lot of black voters and suggested they weren't necessarily you know, they weren't compromising necessarily with with choosing Biden. They actually saw him as a good ally, um, but also saw, you know, th they preferred him over several high quality um, black candidates, um, particularly Harris and Booker, uh, simply, you know, partially because they thought that Biden could win. So, you know, they they were they were reassured that he was someone who was basically on their side and would uh, would support the things they cared about. Um, but also would not suffer so much in an election in, in a way that they thought Harris or Booker might. That idea of electability once again. Mm -hmm. Seth Maskett, you didn't expect to write a book about Democrats. Uh, you thought you'd be writing about Republicans losing in 2016. I just wonder, as a political scientist, what was it like to write a book and pretty early on start with the fact that you were wrong? <laughs> Well, you know, over the course of 2016, I got kind of used to being wrong a lot. So that that helped. Um, but it, it was it was interesting. You know, in 2016, I, I think, you know, a lot of us were uh, pretty convinced that, that Donald Trump was about to lose. And that was, you know, we weren't just making that up. I mean, you know, polling was generally telling us that throughout 2016. Um and it's and it was such an unusual nomination of Donald Trump uh, by the Republicans that year um, that it just it seemed like this party is going to be into some a really interesting moment of soul searching. Um, if they lose, it's just like, well, how did we get here? Did we have to lose this? Could could this have been different if we had a more normal nomination process? So I, I really you know, the whole point of this book was to capture a party you know, dealing with a, a difficult choice and, you know, sort of going through a moment of self-reflection and trying to figure out what went wrong and what they had to do different next time. 
Um, it just ended up being a, a different party that I'm studying. <laughs> exactly. we, we, we may see Republicans going through this in the near future, but uh, uh, it's it, that's not the time period I captured. I mean, the title Learning from Loss of your book strikes me as bold. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, you can't really assume that the Democrats really learned anything until next week or beyond if counting votes and courts get involved. It's a tricky question because um, it depends what we think a good nominee is, right? Um, you know, we, some might say, well, a good nominee is any nominee that wins. Um, I don't know that that's the right answer. Um, you know, you, a party should be able to come up with someone who can, you know, who basically speaks to lots of different parts of the party, who can advocate for that party and 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 sell it well. And ideally, yes, someone who wins. But like, um, you know, Walter Mondale got like completely slaughtered by Ronald Reagan in 1984. I don't know that he was a bad nominee. Um, it, it was simply there was just no way any Democrat was going to win in that election. Um, so it's hard to know what, what, you know, the, the whole concept of learning from loss, I, I admit is a little tricky here because again, <laughs> what, what a party learns is not necessarily right. Um, uh, Democrats could win this election, even if they didn't learn the right thing. Um, but, uh, I was just interested in, in capturing, you know, just what they learned and what that leads them to do. It's also, po yeah, it's possible they could have actually done this process very well and still lose simply because of the electoral college and, you know, a lot of other things that are sort of stacked against. Them. Um, but it was, it was an interesting process just following just decision-making within a party over a four-year time period. We have just about a minute left, Seth. Um, do you, do you want to, I don't, I don't want you to prognosticate exactly, but what will, <laughs> what will you be looking for election night? Well, I'll be looking to see if it ends on election night. Uh -huh. uh, I think there's there's a good chance it won't be. Um, but there are a few states that are likely to have their counts in relatively early. Um, uh, probably Colorado will. We'll, we'll probably have a pretty good idea what happened here uh, by that night. Probably Florida, maybe Arizona. Um, and, you know, judging from that, you know, if, if, if Biden does better than the polls expected, that might give us a, a, an indication of what's going to happen across the country. If he does worse than expected, that might help. Um, you know, just it, it'll give us an idea of how accurate the polling has been. But, you know, I'm also just sort of stealing myself, which uh, for what could be a, a, you know, a fair number of days or even weeks before we actually know what happened. Thank you so much for being with us. Seth Maska directs the Center on American Politics at DU. His new book is Learning from Loss. By the way, Maskett will be one of the voices we turn to next week for post-election analysis. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. If you haven't voted yet, do check out CPR's Comprehensive Voter Guide if you have questions as you fill out your ballot. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with two voters who supported Trump in 16, how they're voting this time around and why. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News. This election night, count on CPR News to keep you up to date as votes are counted around the country and here in Colorado. Our coverage on the radio starts at 5 o'clock with NPR and regular updates from the CPR newsroom and our reporters around the state. And you can get all the results online continuously updated in real time on your mobile device or desktop at CPR.org. Trust the facts. Trust CPR News.
You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When it comes to policy, President Trump's supporters say he's fulfilled many of his 16 campaign promises, like tax cuts, tighter limits on immigration, withdrawal from international agreements like the Paris Climate Accord. At the same time, even some supporters don't like the president's antagonistic, perhaps mean-spirited style or his disregard for the facts. Today, two Coloradans who voted for Trump in 2016, is he getting their votes this time? A little bit about our guests. Kristen Carlson lives in Centennial and, among other things, tutors immigrants. My career was raising five children, and they're all young adults now. So when that changed. (laughs) I actually worked in a coffee shop for a year and a half. And I also do a little bit of substitute teaching. Russ Cunningham lives in Parker. He's a geologist who spent his career in oil and gas. We sold our company at the end of 2014. And it was during a time that the price of oil was going south. And we just decided not to keep pursuing the industry. I've been in the business for over 40 years. Cunningham and Carlson spoke with my colleague, Andrea Dukakis. Kristen, let's start with you. Does Trump have your vote again this year? Yes, he does. And what has he done to earn your vote? I think probably the main issue would be the economy. I feel like before COVID, we had a very strong economy. And I think that's important people had jobs, things were cranking. When you say the economy was moving along smoothly, some would say folks aren't earning a living wage. Mm -hmm. I think people in America work hard. I'd say our immigrants are hard workers. I would say that that's an issue that goes to each state. I don't feel like that should be something settled by the federal government. And in terms of a couple of the other issues that you prioritize, what would those be? Well, I'm pro-business, so I think that kind of goes along with the economy. And I feel like he is pro-business, small and large. I'm pro-life, so that's important to me. I believe human life is holy. Russ, you voted for Trump in the previous election in 2016. Who is getting your vote for president? Vice President Biden will get my vote this year. And are you registered for a certain party? No, I'm an independent. Was there a specific moment when you decided you'd vote for Biden? I think after the first debate, I was pretty put off by Mr. Trump's belligerent nature. I think that he's a very aggressive person and he's not very polite. Mr. Biden couldn't get words in edgewise. That's the first time I've ever seen a president be told to shut up. Of course, Biden said that. So right. he got frustrated. Some would say he was rude, too. But in your mind, the president was much ruder than Vice President Biden. I think there's a crisis of confidence right now for me. Mr. Trump His hyperbole and his exaggerations always border just on a bold-faced lie. And I just get to the point where you don't know if you can even trust the man. So would you say that you voted with frustration at Trump's personality versus his policies? That's correct. Although some policies are lacking as far as an energy policy or a... um, 
environmental climate change policy. And those are linked. And I don't see us having a unified process of going forward. Kristen, I understand you tutor immigrants twice a week. And under Trump, the number of immigrants allowed into this country has been reduced pretty drastically. And much of the president's rhetoric indicates he seems to view their presence here as a negative. Do you feel any contradiction when it comes to your work with immigrants and Trump's stance? On our ballot, there are 21 candidates. There are write-ins also, so I could write my name in if I wanted to. <laughs> and I have to choose the person that best aligns with what, what I think is right. So that would be one area where if I could sit down with President Trump at a table, I would say, you should be letting in a lot more immigrants because I think they're very important to our country. I think they're hard workers. They're valuable. So that's an area where I would not agree with him. So when you go to vote, you weigh the pluses and minuses of each candidate. Definitely. And in this case, Trump came out on top. Yes. So I want to run through a few of the president's decisions and actions that leave his critics dumbfounded. I want to get your take on why they aren't deal breakers for you. What about the issue of this falls in the line of immigration, but kids in detention, separated from their parents? The American Civil Liberties Union said in a court filing that they've been unable to contact parents of about 545 children who were separated at the border. And I wonder what you your take is on it? You know, I don't know enough about that particular situation. As far as the border goes, I think that's been a challenge because we have, yes, lots of people coming from South America. They want to come to America. America is a great country. They want to be here. So um, that presents all kinds of challenges. So, you know, I don't know what the solution is. And Ross, how about you on the issue of kids in detention? I don't think you should separate families. If you're going to detain the people, then you need to detain them together as a family. Because most of them probably came all the way up through Mexico from Central America. And once they get there, you can't just leave the kids alone while our U.S. government tries to sort out the details of what they're going to do with you and your family. Kristen, what about this issue of holding in-person rallies during the pandemic and the fact that Trump hasn't encouraged folks to wear masks at these rallies and many of them aren't? I try and be sensitive to people around me and to what the person next to me is comfortable with. If a rally's being held on private property, I feel like each person has decided whether they want to be there or not. And so that's going to be up to them. I want to ask you, Russ, because you were divided about who you were going to vote for. You weren't sure whether it would be Trump or Biden. What do you like about Trump's policies? The thing I liked the most was the way he dealt with taxes, mm -hmm. um, with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. In 2017, I think it was December, he um, addressed problems with personal as well as corporate taxes. And uh, personal taxes were all lessened by a few percent in each of the seven brackets. 
And so I really enjoyed that, and I thought it was fair. And the corporate tax was brought down from 35% to 21%. And that's a good thing, too, because it incentivizes businesses. At the same time, it doesn't bring as much revenue into the federal government at a time when we're racking up deficits. Is that a concern to you, you know, these deficits that have been really skyrocketing in recent years? Absolutely it is. There's a budget deficit and there's a huge trade deficit as well. And those are things that are affected by a lot of different issues. So When we have these deficits, then you throw a pandemic on it, and we're just printing money. And so there's no balanced budget, and people are just shrugging their shoulders and say, well, we're in a pandemic. And your feeling is we don't really have a choice right now in terms of what we're spending. No, we do not have a choice right now. I think what was happening is that businesses were doing so well, and it really got a through a curveball with the pandemic when we basically shut down the country. It was just like dominoes dropping and mm. everything shut down. Are you worried Biden will overspend? Yes. He's going to come in with the typical progressive agenda. His uh, running mate, Ms. Harris, she's one that will have an influence on him and will steer him a little bit left of center. I think, though... We'll probably see a little bit more taxes and hopefully not too much on the personal side. Kristen, what's your view of Biden as a candidate? Did you ever consider voting for him? If this was a popularity contest, I would vote for him. If I was in high school and it was a popularity contest, that's who I would vote for. But it's not a popularity contest. Four years ago, I did a lot of soul-searching Because, as Russ talked about with the first debate, um, with President Trump's personality, and that's something I had to really think about long and hard. And what went through your mind? You know, I look at how he conducts himself. There are times I have seen him conduct himself wonderfully. I don't think all those moments day to day are covered by our media I don't think he'd be an easy person to work with. I mean, that's my impression. But sometimes leaders are not easy people to work with. Both of you have children, and it sounds like you all have different opinions in your family about who to vote for. How does that work in terms of family discussions, Kristen? I was thinking about this yesterday, that when I was growing up, we never talked about politics. But I think at our dinner table, we talk... Um, when our children were home, we would discuss business a lot because my husband's a passionate business person. But yeah, we talk about politics. And then in our extended family, we have people that cover the whole spectrum. So even if we strongly disagree, I still want to be able to have a conversation And how has COVID played into those conversations? I mean, we talk about this country being polarized, and one of those issues has been COVID Mm -hmm. and how we conduct ourselves around a pandemic. Has that been a source of discussion in your family? Definitely. I was back in my home state in July. It was my parents' 60th wedding anniversary, and the extended family was there. And each person was very different about how they handled that. 
And my mother, she asked me, she said, you know, if when we're inside the hotel, would you, she said, it would make me feel more comfortable if everyone wears a mask. And I said, Mom, it's your party. We will do whatever you want us to do. So um, that's definitely been a discussion. And Russ, you have family members that disagree on issues, I understand. How does that play out in family dinners? We agree to disagree Mm -hmm. on a number of issues. Both of our children have gone to college, our daughter to the East Coast and our son up in Boulder. So they have a little bit more of a liberal or progressive slant than my wife and I do. We're a little bit more conservative. And so there are just certain things that it doesn't matter to how long you talk. You can talk till you're blue in the face, but neither of us are going to change what we really believe. And yet you both raise children that don't necessarily agree with you. So you wanted that openness in terms of conversation and understanding within your family. Absolutely correct. The only thing yes. we said is just be honest. Yes, I agree. Kristen Carlson lives in Centennial and supports President Donald Trump. Russ Cunningham lives in Parker. Like Carlson, he voted for Trump in 2016, but he now backs Vice President Joe Biden. The two spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. We're sharing stories of new Americans who are voting for the first time. Jane Marithi and her husband James left Kenya in 2009 and finally became U.S. citizens late last year. As they told my colleague Avery Lill, they came for the opportunities that weren't available in Kenya. The motivating factor was uh, better opportunities that were missing back home. For example, I myself wanted to pursue higher education and opportunities were not available back home. Competition was just too stiff. Opportunities were not there. So um, that was a motivating factor. And I've... uh, achieved a lot since I came here because I completed my bachelor's uh, last year. And now I'm pursuing a master's. Jane, tell me about your reasons for moving. My reason of moving is also better opportunities and for myself and for my children because I'm here, there are better opportunities in getting uh, better jobs. Plus, the children, they have the opportunity of of advancing in their education and getting better jobs. So I really appreciate my moving here in the United States. I work at Walmart, and I'm happy about it. Tell me about your family. Tell me about your children. I have three children. Two are grown up. The daughter is in uh, Washington, Seattle. She works with the Home Instead as a recruitment coordinator. Um, the second born is a son. He has his own transport company, also in Seattle. So the last one is uh, who is in college. He wants to become a real estate agent here in Colorado. He's working vigorously towards the, you know, that goal. Sounds like your kids really have great opportunities. And then have your kids all become citizens too? Yes. Yeah, they are. 
And tell me a little bit about what the move was like to the United States from Kenya in the first place. Are there any stories about settling into the U.S. that come to mind? Yeah, settling in the U.S. is not uh, very easy. You have to reconcile yourself with the different uh, multicultural nation where you meet all kinds of people. So um, to relate to these people uh, with different culture, different uh, uh, orientation, different religions, and it, it takes a while. But by and by, one catches up. It was not troublesome for me either. Jane, I wonder what things surprised you when you moved to the United States? Oh, the landscape, snow, different kinds of of weather. We didn't have extreme weather like uh, summer. So uh, it was also a good experience of different kinds of culture. And what were the good experiences that maybe surprised you? Oh, getting a job with a better pay. That's great. And then tell me about how the move was for your kids. How was getting adjusted for them? Oh, they adjusted fairly well because we lived in the city and we had also some different cultures, although not so many like here. So they adjusted well and they loved it. And tell me about moving to Colorado. Was that very different than New Jersey? Yes, it is. People live in New Jersey and they work in New York. So um, it's a bit congested in terms of population, in terms of traffic. Even housing is, is quite different when we came to Colorado. Life here is, uh, you know, it's a bit relaxed. And what about the people in Colorado? Have they been different than in New Jersey? Yes. Um, here people are a bit, uh, they are warmer here. People, they talk to you, uh, they greet you, you know, so, so, so there's a difference and uh, you feel that sense of acceptance. And uh, to add to that, it's not so congested, you know, even driving here is so friendly. Driving in New York or New Jersey, it's really uh, hectic because there's so many cars on the roads. Colorado Springs is good. And uh, then it's a big city such that you get all the uh, necessities in life that you need. You don't need to go out of Colorado Springs. So we really appreciate being here. Did you all know when you moved to the United States that you wanted to become citizens? Yes, uh, that that was uh, one of the goals. Because that's the only way uh, we could access those opportunities that... uh, identify with the American dream, uh, including education, better job opportunities, being more competitive in the job market, and, uh, you know, realizing the benefits of uh, citizenship, including the right to vote. And also to elevate our status in life, you know. And how has the process of becoming a citizen been for you? The process was things here are transparent. That's a good thing with the United States. Things are transparent, provided you are doing things within the four corners of the law. Uh, you are good. We didn't have much hassle. We didn't have much problems. A question of applying and waiting, you know, and uh, that was it. Yeah, we, we can't complain about. Now, this is kind of a crazy time to become a citizen. I mean. 
Obviously, you became a citizen before the pandemic, but there was still a lot of political polarization. And now we're dealing with a national reckoning with racism and racial inequality. Tell me about what it's like to become a citizen now. As you say, um, this is a crazy time because of the pandemic and uh, political polarization. But uh, I think uh, it didn't affect us because, uh, as I said, when you're doing things within the law, things tend to be a bit smooth. And how important was it for you both to become a citizen by November's election? Definitely. Um, America being a, a nation which uh, values are depending on, uh, you know, good governance and democracy. It was an important uh, feat as citizens to get that, uh, you know, responsibility to vote. And uh, we are looking forward to it. Uh, it will be our first uh, cast of the ballot. And we are excited about it. Uh, you know, that inclusivity is important as American citizens now. And while you're getting ready to vote, what issues are most important to you when you're casting that ballot? Right now, it's all about the pandemic. The diminishing opportunities uh, for American citizens is a matter that uh, we would want uh, addressed by the government. We are certain that uh, those things will be achieved. How do you feel like the government has done handling the pandemic? Um, This is a global problem. So I think uh, they have done their best to curtail the spread. I hope more efforts will be done so that uh, we can resume to our normal that was there before February. Do you mind sharing who you'll vote for for president? Uh, I think because it's a sacred ballot, I'd rather reserve that one. Okay. Um, Even without sharing who you want to vote for for president, do you mind sharing whether you lean toward Republican or Democratic sides? Well, I'm in the middle, let me say. And Jane, how do you feel like immigrating from Kenya shapes your perspective of United States politics? You know, politics, they are all over. So there's no much complaint about it. Because um, during the elections, uh, one has to air your views so that people, uh, the public can make their decision. It happens the same also in our country. So I don't feel like there's much, much difference. And when you talk with other immigrants about immigration, what experiences do you share? Or like what questions do you have for each other? So um, one thing I know in America is that if you want to achieve your dream or at least to uplift your standard, you have to go to school. There's, There's no doubt about that. So uh, I share it with my children. I share it with um, my fellow immigrants. The second thing, you, you must live within the law and uh, working hard and paying taxes. Those are the things that will make you live as a good American citizen. And Jane, what about for you? What do you talk about when you talk with other immigrants? I talk about uh, my children. They have gotten better opportunities They've gone to school, so now they get better jobs. And we advise each other that, you know, you have to be yourself, whatever you are, respect to each other, taking 
each other person as one of you, what you wouldn't like somebody to do to you, don't do to the other person. And then advising the children according to that, as James said, not to be in trouble because laws are all, all over. If you don't follow the law, uh, you get into trouble. We advise our children and when we talk with the other immigrants that it is very, very important to obey the law and to advise our children to mind their friends not to engage in their own companies. Well, these are such great things that you've all shared. I wonder if you have any other stories from immigration that you want to share. Uh, for me, it's just to appreciate the being a citizen uh, because it has elevated my life, my family, and my children. Likewise, I would like to appreciate the, the American government for giving us the opportunity to become citizens. We have seen a difference in uh, in our lifestyle, in our hopes, in our aspirations, and uh, in the way we relate with other people, especially in this nation where you have to learn to live with diverse communities. You heard there James and Jane Marithi speaking with Avery Lill for CPR's New American series, Conversations with Recent Citizens Who Are Voting This Election. At CPR.org, you can see photos that our colleague Hart Van Denberg took at their naturalization ceremonies. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner here with CPR News.